and thank you for tuning in to Public Health Matters, the student-run podcast made possible by the USC School of Public Health, where we discuss various facets of public health. My name is Conchetta. I'm an MPH student here at USC in the Division of Community Health Sciences, and I think you're really going to like this episode. Today's content is intended to become part of a series exploring professional avenues of public health, and to facilitate this, I'll be talking with Dr. Uchechi Mitchell to learn about her research role and journey as a public health practitioner. Dr. Uchechi Mitchell is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Community Health Sciences here at the USC School of Public Health, where she has worked on a variety of health equity research projects. Her research interests fall within the continuum of racial health equity, discrimination, and the biological impacts of stress, especially as it relates to aging. She received her Bachelor of Arts with Honors in Biochemical Sciences from Harvard University. Then she earned both an MS and PhD in Public Health from the University of California in Los Angeles. So without further ado, let's get started. So Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much for being here with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So I was hoping that you could tell our listeners a little bit about your background and what your current field is and how you became involved in that current field. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, I am a researcher uh, that focuses on health equity and minority aging. So thinking about um, the lived experiences and the, um, you know, you know, the status of older adults, particularly those who are part of communities of color, people of color. And I got into this field not knowing much about public health in the beginning. I actually went to undergrad and I was pre-med and I was going to be a pediatrician. So ended up on a different age spectrum, but still doing work related to health. And I think what happened was when I was in undergrad, I didn't really have much exposure to public health until I took a course on health policy and global health policy. And that's when I really started getting into like, oh, what is this thing called public health? How is it related to um, communities? Um, How is it related to um, the medical field? And I decided I want to explore that further. And so after I graduated from undergrad, I went and participated in AmeriCorps with the Community Health um, Service Corps. So I was a community health service member and I was um, assigned a a project that was located within a low-income, primarily African and Asian immigrant and Caribbean immigrant community in Boston. And so while I was there, I was working in health education um, around diabetes, self-care and exercise, um, um, uh, physical activity, trying to help older adults in terms of physical activity. And that's when I realized that public health is this really wonderful field that really speaks to helping populations, helping communities, particularly communities that have been underserved and under-resourced. And so, After my year of service is when I decided to go get my master's in public health. I was still kind of playing with the idea of going to med school, but once I got into my degree program, I realized how much I wanted to be on the side of working with communities and populations, as opposed to working with individuals and treatment, really about the prevention um, and and making sure people have quality um, lives. 
And so um, I did my master's in public health and decided to continue on to the PhD because I really wanted to get into a deeper understanding of the structural barriers to health that communities of color face. So thinking about structural racism, thinking about um, the way um, social economic status influences health um, and how that all over the life course can put certain groups at greater risk for disease compared to others. So it was that um, desire for understanding of how this process works, how we really get to the point where, for example, older African-Americans have a higher prevalence of diabetes and diabetic complications or heart disease and hypertension. That is what I wanted to study. And I also wanted to study how to prevent it once you understand how we get to the point where we are today. Um, so that's how I got into um, health equity and thinking about minority aging. Um, and that's the work that I continue to do to this day. Wow, that's really, thank you for that. Um, I'm curious, I want to think really early on and I'm curious because you mentioned that you were interested in going into pediatrics. So you've always kind of had this health interest in health overall, you would say. Yes. Was there anyone who um, inspired you early on in your career or any event that kind of set you along your way when it came to wanting to focus on inequities in terms of a health focus? So I, I, it's hard to pinpoint one person or one experience. I would say that my time of service with the Community Health Corps um, was uh, pivotal in, in my decision, just because I got to be so close with a lot of the community members and realized that there's um, a lot of stereotypes that low-income communities um, have to deal with in terms of their crime-ridden, you know, they are, just don't care about their neighborhood. There's a lot of neighborhood disorder, but really the people there are just uh, trying to, you know, make it like everybody else, but they have not been provided the necessary resources to do what they need to do to be as healthy as possible. And so in this moment of where I'm doing diabetes education in terms of this is how to eat healthy, this is how to engage in greater physical activity, it just dawned on me, well, they don't really have a grocery store in this neighborhood. They don't really have places to exercise. So I am being very hypocritical. That's how I felt in trying to educate these people about how to be healthy. And so it was going through that experience that really showed me that, you know what, it's not the people necessarily that needs to change. I understand public health does deal with health behavior change, but it's also the structures, the environments, the communities that need to be changed to give people the opportunity to engage in health behaviors that um, will be beneficial to them. So I would say that was more, that, that experience was very pivotal um, to my decision to go into public health. And then also thinking about my, my parents and older adults within my family family who have diabetes and who have high blood pressure and really wanting to understand, you know, they, they are educated, they, you know, all of the other benefits that people have, you know, stable housing, um, you know, family support, but still um, they're experiencing a high proportion of these chronic conditions. And so 
um, seeing how my my family had to kind of care for themselves, dealing with um, their own health issues was also motivation to think about what can we do in terms of prevention and particularly prevention and, and within this context of health equity so that we don't see these disparities in health outcomes and including longevity. Um, so it's a combination of my my lived experience with my family and my older adults, as well as the experiences that I had um, when I participated in the Community Health Corps. Oh, that's really interesting. I just wanted to say that I, I relate a little bit to one thing you're stating in terms of my own journey and in going into public health. Mm-hmm. Um, I had started with AmeriCorps and worked at a rehousing program in, in Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> and I think that I had a very similar experience where I saw some of the services we were providing to individuals and realized, well, it's not their fault. They don't have access to this. They don't have access to that. How are they supposed to maintain, you know, a healthy, like a good mental health if there's nowhere for them to walk, if they don't have access to cars to get to a park, if they don't, you know, that that was some of my experience as well. So I appreciate that. And I also appreciate you sharing that this was like a very personal um, lived experience that that sort of inspired your decision. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. No, thank you. Um, so were there, um, outside of working with the a community core program, were there any other pivotal decisions later on. Um, obviously, you continued this work. You went on to get your PhD, and you are studying um, stress and coping and biomarkers. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, your current work, or maybe some of your later decision-making process early in career? Yeah, be happy. Career. Yeah. So you know how I got into stress and coping, which is interesting because people often think about stress and coping on a very individual level. Um, but I think about it on a structural community level, right? And the stressors that I'm most interested in are race-related, thinking about discrimination and other forms of racism that minority communities face. And part of that um, came from looking, you know, when I was in my master's program, looking at research that showed that even when you have um, people of similar social economic status, similar health behaviors, you know, similar neighborhoods, there are still racial disparities in health outcomes. And I wanted to understand why. And for me, race is not a, a, a actual like biological thing. And I think most people in public health understand that. It is a social thing that is functioning as a proxy for racism. And the fact that opportunities for social and economic advancement, opportunities for health um, really differ based on this thing called race because of the way historical and contemporary forms of racism have played out. And so that really got me interested in how racism not only shapes opportunities, but also shapes how the body physically functions. So thinking about racism as a stressor that actually alters the ability of your body to function in the way it's supposed to. And that's how I've tied it to biomarkers. But at the same time, really wanting to also recognize that 
in the Black community, for example, and other communities of color, there are a lot of assets and strengths and resources that have been utilized across um, generations to cope with racism. So I didn't want to just only have a deficit model where, you know, we think about these communities as being um, victimized and oppressed, which they are, but they also have strengths and assets that they can, they utilize not just to survive, but to actually thrive. And I think that's a manifestation of resilience. Um, and that's something that I'm moving into a little bit more, thinking about protective factors that are co culturally salient to the Black community um, and ways in which they it's helped them, both in terms of mental health and physical health um, over time. So that's some of my current work, looking at stress, coping, and how it affects physi physiology or these biomarkers, but also other outcomes um, that are maybe non-traditional in terms of mental health outcomes. So thinking about hope and hopelessness and how essential it is to be, to have some optimism or hope within your life, especially when you are faced with racism and other uh, systems of oppression. And um, it's a relationship to both physical health outcomes like cardiovascular diseases, as well as mental health outcomes like depression. So, you know, thinking about some of these other um, um, indicators of well-being that don't get studied as much, but maybe um, just as important, if not more important than some of the traditional health outcomes that we look at. So I want to go more into the coping. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about coping and, and hopelessness and some of those strategies that you've been learning. But I, real quick, I wanted to address stress biomarkers because I just learned about that for the first time last semester in one of my, in my 401 class. Um, and we talked a little bit about how uh, the potentiality of stress being inheritable and how that's being studied. So I was wondering for those who may be new to this topic, what can you give like a very quick high level explanation of maybe what some examples of, of biomarkers might be within your research? or other research. Yeah, for sure. I think the biomarker that maybe people are most familiar with because it's been all over the news is inflammation. So there's all this about what are anti-inflammatory foods to eat and, and stuff like that. So that is one um, example of a biomarker that is linked to stress exposure. So the idea being when you are stressed, um, your immune system activates and it activates because it's a protective um, function of your body. So you're stressed, you're facing something threatening, something challenging. And so your body's preparing yourself for potential injury. And that's when your inflammatory markers start rising all and, and running around throughout your body. Um, but if you're not actually attacked, you know, they're just being activated and then nothing's happening. But if you're chronically exposed to this stressor, your immune system is being activated over and over and over and over again. And if this happens throughout the life course, the hypothesis is that eventually your immune function kind of um, dysfunctions, you know, no longer functions in the way it's supposed to. It wears away. It's been, you know, worn out from these constant repeated exposures to stress. And so I conceptualize that thinking about racism and discrimination as that stressor that minority 
and communities, communities of color have to face from birth all the way into old age and how that can put them on a trajectory of poor health um, that contributes to those health disparities that we see. So I think inflammation is one of the key ones that most people would be familiar with. But people also look at um, blood pressure changes. Um, people also look at changes in metabolic functioning. So thinking about um, cholesterol levels and um, hemoglobin A1C or blood glucose levels, and even things like, um, um, you know, I guess more um, waist circumference and and weight gain, they're all associated with stress exposure in one way or another. Yeah, definitely. So what are some of the coping mechanisms that you've researched, that you were researching or have researched? Yeah, so I think the, the the main one and the one that people are most familiar with is social support and social support from families, from friends, and particularly within the Black community, social support from um, church members. Um, and, you know, thinking about how that's a somewhat more unique experience among um, older African-Americans, particularly because their family networks tend to be more extended. Um, so they have fictive kin, which are, you know, relatives that they call brother, sister, sister, aunt, uncle, but may not have a blood relation to them. Um, but that is something that was born out of necessity in terms of needing to have a stable family and community when faced with oppression. And so, um, that close-knit kind of family style that um, the Black community has, the closeness with um, their religious communities, um, as well as um, friendship relationships among older um, African-Americans has been some of what um, I've looked at in terms of um, thinking about social support that can help you um, when you're faced with discrimination. Um, and then some of the other ones is just is thinking about religious resources. Um, the Black church has played a really strong role in terms of um, the lives of older African-Americans, not just in terms of um, uh, belief systems and, and messaging, but also in terms of social programs, educational programs and the like. And thinking about the role that both religious attendance, religious involvement, and just pure religiosity in terms of your beliefs system can um, be protective when you're faced with different types of stressors. So those are some, uh, two of them that I've most recently been um, focused on, um, but there's definitely a wealth of other resources that could be explored. Very interesting. So Dr. Mitchell, like we've mentioned this um, with the topic of this podcast, we wanna look a little bit into pathways that people um, adjacent to your line of work might consider or people interested in your line of work might consider. Um, so I was wondering if you could pivot and tell me a little bit about what your daily work looks like. Like what does a productive week look like in the type of, I guess, in the research field or the health equity field? Productive. Big question. Yeah. <laughs> What's productive? I'm sure that changes what it looks like depending on what grants you have or what courses you're teaching. Exactly. Productive mm -hmm. is a hard word. <laughs> so 
I always feel like there's more that I could be doing. Um, so, you know, when I started at UIC, a lot of my work in the beginning was um, involved more like data number crunching. So Mm -hmm. there are large data sets, you know, that have been created that have surveyed people about their lived experiences. And I would essentially use these data sets and do some sort of analyses to answer my questions about stress and health and coping. Um, And so most of my day was spent, you know, reading articles, doing analyses, writing papers, in addition to teaching and serving on committees related to the school operations. Um, But more and more, I've moved and had more of a community engaged focus to the type of work that I do. And so that has involved um, community focus groups, Um, it's involved community interviews, and it involves um, greater attention to more specific needs within Chicago communities here. So that might mean I'm going to uh, Washington Heights for a meeting, or that might mean that I am you know, spending some time brainstorming with my community partners about new research topics or um, interventions that they're contemplating and ways in which I, as well as UIC, can provide necessary resources for them. So um, it's a part of my work that is still growing and still burgeoning, um, but it's something that I see myself doing more and more in terms of making sure that I have more community content when I do my research so that it's meaningful, right? So it's useful to the communities that I care about the most. So I don't have like a typical day-to-day, it kind of depends mm-hmm. on what my deadline is or what's due that week. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so it may be that there's a grant deadline. It may be that I have to review something. It may be that there's a paper deadline. Um, so there's a lot of flexibility in my day-to-day, which I appreciate. Um, but I, I can't say that I have a typical um, day and productive day would be, or a productive week, I should say, would be at least crossing off one thing off my to-do list <laughs> without adding another thing. <laughs> Ooh, that sounds like the dream. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen. So that's why I'm like, I'm not so sure I'm productive, but I'm trying. <laughs> So maybe a better question is, um, for we talked a little bit about how you got into your topic or your line, when we say your line of work, like more, we talked about your topic of work or your topic of interest as a researcher. What would you say to somebody who, I think I want to talk a little bit about what you would say to someone who'd be interested in going into a lecturer researcher route. And then also then maybe after that, we can discuss what we might, what advice you might give to somebody who would want to be in an adjacent position? Maybe they're thinking academia is not for me, but health equity, like what other things have you, who who else have you worked with that maybe others should be aware of in terms of work positions? Yeah. So to the first one, so I guess I can, it sounds like you're asking like what how I got into this position of academia. Yeah, as opposed to other routes, because you started as um, kind of more in the field from the sound of it with your AmeriCorps background. 
Yeah. And that's the interesting part about, I think I've come full circle in a, in a lot of ways. Um, Cause when I was in undergrad, I was like, I got to do biochemistry cause that's what's going to get me into med school. Mm-hmm. And then I started off with more community based work through AmeriCorps. Then I shifted into academia and still focused on topics that I um, are concerned about, but then um uh, now I'm getting back into community-based work and looking at biomarkers. So kind of on both ends of the spectrum right now. Um, but I would say the path to academia is pretty um, standard mm-hmm. in terms of starting off with your master's and then maybe a um, going into a PhD program or a DRPH program where you're thinking about um, getting a deeper understanding as to how our system structures and um, other aspects of the world work. So you have this burning question that you want to address and here's where you gain the tools to answer those questions and do some of the um, program interventions and evaluations that you want to do. And then um, I went from my PhD program to a postdoctoral training program, which is where you get a little bit more specialized in your knowledge. So you can think of it as a med student going into residency. (laughs) Um, So there may be an area that you really wanna learn more about. And for me, it was aging and thinking about um, biomarkers related to aging. Um, And then once I finished two years of that is when I applied for faculty positions at different universities and was fortunate enough to get a position at UIC. So that's typically the path that most people take to get into academia. And um, once you're there, the type of work you do ends up being relatively the same research, teaching, and service, but it does depend on the institution that you're going to. Some are more research-oriented like UIC, and some are more teaching-oriented. So you have flexibility in that space in terms of um, the type of institution that you want to be um, working with. Does that answer the question? Totally, yes. And how about for adjacent for people who, or people you might have worked with in the health equity field, um, especially now that you're going back into the more community uh, centered realm, what other positions out there might you recommend for people interested but not thinking academia is for them? Uh, so I'll be honest, it's, it's hard because I am in academia. So the non academia is, is a little bit. You don't bit have to answer that if you don't familiar. want to. No, that's fine. But I would say that, you know, people are often like, I do have students that definitely don't want to do academia. It doesn't appeal to them. So mm-hmm. they're looking at working at health departments. And like we know, the Chicago Department of Public Health does have a health equity focus. And so in that space, they can still use their skill sets in terms of um, thinking about programs or initiatives or interventions that can help in terms of addressing some of the health disparities. So I think that's a common space in which um, a lot of our students go is working with departments of public health, working with um, think tanks that are focusing on health equity issues um, uh, or even um, 
working with community organizations um, within the communities that they care about who are trying to shape um, some of those structural de social determinants of health. So for example, my community partner who I've been working with for the past almost three, yeah, three, um, three years or so, um, is um, the Andaleo Institute in Washington Heights area. And they are um, affiliated with the Tr Trinity United Church of Christ, but they're their own nonprofit organization that's really focusing on education, um, health and community development. So they're not academics, but they're focusing on three things that are really key to public health and what we do, trying to transform the community that where people live by improving housing, um, uh, advocating for more resources, more businesses within the neighborhood. Um, they're shifting into a focus about mental health and how they can help young people, especially now during the pandemic, um, kind of cope with some of the stressors that they're facing. And then educational programs where they try to uh, provide exposure to um, college-bound students of the different paths that they can take. So those are definitely more in the community involved types of initiatives that can be undertaken if academia is not necessarily for you. Great, super helpful. I think, um, yeah, I think a lot of people will get a lot out of that. So yeah. I wanted to follow up with a question about COVID. So COVID has opened so many people's eyes to structural inequalities mm -hmm. that um, what are some important lessons we should be learning or what needs to be done in order to build health equity? Wow, that's a big question as well. <laughs> well, what I hope people recognize is that what we're seeing with COVID is the same thing that we see in terms of maternal and infant mortality among Black women. It's the same thing that we're seeing in terms of um, premature mortality, same thing that we're seeing in terms of um, disparities in um, diabetes, hypertension, and other chronic conditions. That the way structural racism works, it recreates these, these differences in health, these disparities in health, regardless of what the health outcome is. And so to really address health disparities, we have to deal with the disparities, uh, the structural racism that's creating the disparities. And what we're seeing in particular is that these, um, the things that put people at greatest risk, particularly communities of color are at greatest risk, are things like um, that fall within the realm of poverty status, that fall within the realm of being living in disadvantaged communities. So living in places where you can't really social distance because it's maybe a public housing unit and it's more difficult to do so. Living in a, a space where you have to take public transportation to get to work and you can't don't have the luxury of quote, working from home because you have to be on site. Um, having um, to be an essential worker, which tends to most of them, if you're thinking about the people um, who are essential workers right now, tend to be from communities of color. And so it's again, one of these things where the risk factors for COVID 
are these social and structural determinants of health. And it's the same thing that we see with other health outcomes. So if we really care about um, addressing health inequities, then we really need to change the way our systems operate, right? And we really need to address um, the social inequities, the economic inequities, alongside with the health inequities. Um, and then at the same time, what we're seeing really now in terms of vaccination is again, this um, another manifestation of, of the injustice in our system where there are definitely certain communities that have better access to the vaccinations. Um, so for example, the neighborhood that I've been thinking about, um, Washington Heights, which is where my, my community partners work, they are actually um, living in what's known as a pharmacy desert. So there's maybe one or two Walgreens at the most in their neighborhood. Whereas if you're on the north side, you got Walgreens, you got CVS, you have all sorts of convenience stores available that can supply vaccinations. But there's less of them um, on the south side of Chicago. And so they've been advocating, and actually um, my community partner has met with um, some of the leadership at Walgreens to really say like, you're closing our one source of um, pharmacy care that's within our neighborhood where we don't have to jump on two buses to get to the next one. And so if we're thinking about the distribution of these vaccines, how is the fact that there aren't pharmacies located in this neighborhood affecting the distribution of vaccine in the neighborhood that's highly hit by COVID-19? So that is definitely a structural issue. And I understand that there's a lot of conversation around vaccine hesitancy, but the real conversation I think needs to be about these structural barriers that have one contributed to these um, hesitancy. So thinking about historical forms of racism within our medical and public health institutions, but also the structural barriers that are in place to even accessing these resources when they want them. So, um, Again, that's part of how inequity works is that those who have resources are also the ones who are first to get the resources when it's needed. And at the same time, those who have no resources and have the greatest risk factors are the ones to get more exposed to those risk factors during times like these. Um, so on two sides of the coin, um, these communities are being um, marginalized and, and disadvantaged. Hearing you talk about this always fills me with such internal frustration. I wonder if there is anything that you see that we can do or begin to do from the position that we're in to build health equity. Mm. Another really hard question. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the good ones today. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, but it still just goes back to um, changing the way our systems work. Granted, we did not have, in my opinion, the best leadership when the pandemic came out. Um, and public health um, should and pride itself on, on its ability to address pandemics, epidemics, and that understanding of vaccination. 
Um, but those voices were not elevated in the way that they should have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that has significantly impacted the course of this pandemic and its recovery and our recovery from it, I should say. And I feel, um, and maybe this is a little bit of a soapbox, <laughs> but you know, public health doesn't get the same respect as medicine, although we impact the communities far more than medicine does, in my opinion. Um, medicine is where you go when you need treatment. Public health is where you go when you want prevention. And because prevention is hard to see, it's not tangible because you've prevented disease. I think um, public health doesn't get the same um regard as the medical field. And I'm hoping that, you know, this pandemic has changed that because it is public health that is consistently focused on changing these systems and these structures. And that is the only way we can achieve health equity, right? Changing their policies, changing the way our institutions operate such that we aren't advantaging one group over another um, and that we're actually working to elevate um, those groups that have been historically and contemporarily disadvantaged. Um, and so I, I know I'm speaking in more abstract terms because um, that is kind of where we need to be in terms of our mental state about addressing health equity. And from there can come concrete initiatives and programs that really focus attention on communities that have been marginalized and how we can provide them um, not just, uh, you know, basic resources, but even more of the resources so they can get to a similar level as more advantaged communities. I think in terms of speaking vaguely as well, you could take everything you've just said and turn it into an entire course <laughs> and beyond, right? Yes. Um, and, and some things that I'm hearing you say that I just want to reiterate is this idea of elevating experts, um, elevating public health experts and giving them a voice and also listening to community organizations who and empowering kind of kind of like what I like to think we're working on with chai tracing, um, giving them resources to help fill some of these gaps because in the end of the day, that's, I mean, real change can happen from that angle or from that perspective or from that energy source yes <sighs> yes yeah I, I mean the communities know what they need so we just need to listen to them mm-hmm. they know why the problems exist i mean yes we research them these right. issues um i don't mean them in terms of the people but we research these issues mm-hmm. but that's because i think it's the only way for their stories to be validated in mainstream society And maybe there's been a shift, but these communities already knew that the reason why, you know, they are suffering um, worse health outcomes was because of racism, because poor landlords don't upkeep their homes. There's lead in their water, lead in their paint. There are um, industrial plants located in their neighborhoods. They already knew what risk factors they were exposed to. And they already knew that it impacted their health negatively. But we tend to not listen to those who are marginalized because we, you know, stereotype them as not knowing what they're talking about, not smart enough, not educated enough, not something enough. And so I think the research that we do um, around health equity, um, for good or for worse, has become um, 
a way of validating their experiences, but it's sad that they need us to do that because other people just won't listen to them. So I, that's why I love um, people that truly genuinely engage in community participatory research because it puts the community at the center instead of the researcher. And we definitely need more of that um, because they are the real experts of the experiences that they are having. And I, and I love that. It makes me think also of in politics, I think in the past, another thing, it's not, a, you know, yet, yes, communities are not being listened to. And it's also, I think that politics has historically been playing, you know, played in a game that not everybody has the rules to, right? So that in some sense, the, the work in this research helps, should be a process in which, which both takes the voices and uplifts the voices of those who are experiencing the problem and have the best insight in the problem, but it is also inversely translating what the problem is and how to, and empowering communities and individuals to make change for themselves at the same time, coming at it with all angles. So I really appreciate some of those concepts we've been learning here in class too. Um, yeah, you're just making me think. Good, it all comes together. <laughs> it does, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the hopes for um, your generation and those following you in terms of doing this work? Um, Oh, you say my generation makes me sound old. <laughs> I mean, no, I hope no, it didn't you. make it sound like that. I, I consider, but like, you know, I think I maybe I'm on TikTok too much looking at the whole <laughs> Gen Z divide, right? Or um, Gen X, Gen Z divide. Yeah. And then those coming on even beyond that and how so much activism is actually taking on a youth voice these days. Yeah. So I want to think about how do we, you know, we're, we're sort of in career, right? We're mid-career, early career. We have experience, um, you know, if you're in the grad level, you just, that's where you are. And so it's thinking about, you kind of already know some problems you want to change and then, and so, but you're already there with, with younger generations and thinking it's along the lines of, okay, then what, what are, what should we accomplish so that they can pick it up? And they, you know, in an ideal world, might just babble too much there. <laughs> no, you're fine. Um, you know, what I really appreciate about, you know, people who are younger than me, and I will say there is a, a gap. I guess I'm considered a millennial, but I'm one of the older ones, <laughs> even between my brother, who's like just turned 33, there's a gap. And I'm like in my late thirties. Um, but, um, I just feel what I see in the younger generation is this, um, you know, I'm just not going to take it anymore kind of mentality. So definitely very active, understand the research, but just like I was saying, understand it because it's their lived experiences and don't necessarily need us to tell them about their stories, Um, but then are also really, really dedicated to organizing and advocating on their behalf and the others um, um, that they reckon uh, that they um, align with. And so in terms of like what I see we're doing right now, 
least what I feel my work is doing, um, is hopefully giving them information that, you know, they can put forth when they are challenged by the naysayers who try to say, well, it's not because of discrimination. It's because they're not motivated enough. It's because they don't care about the communities, da, 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 da. Um, that type of rhetoric that does get bounced around when describing communities of color. Um, so if anything, those voices, those policymakers, those people who are in leadership who don't want to hear them, you know, this younger generation can turn to the research that we do now for that argument. But um, what I hope they continue to do, um, which I think sometimes once we get mid-career, we, we, we stop doing, especially when you're in academia, um, is being on that front line in terms of pushing our policymakers and challenging our policymakers to actually do something. And so um, I do hope uh, there will be more, I guess, um, um, balance between that I haven't seen in my life, not saying that it doesn't exist, but more balance between research and policy work. Um, So somebody who is engaged in research in the academic sense is also making sure that research is um, informing policy and being um, shared with policymakers and other decision makers that really control the way these systems and institutions function. So that bridge, I hope, continues to um, grow so that the margin, the, the, the gap between research and policy becomes smaller. And I think that's the charge that I would give for the younger generation. That's great. Yes. Love that. I feel like I fumbled that question and you picked it up and ran with it. Nice. <laughs> I think I got what you were saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's really good advice. Is there anything else that you would like the listeners to know before we, before we close up today? I mean, I guess the only thing is that I love what I do and mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't, no, I thought I would love what I would do when I started off, you know, because I was learning about public health and what it is. And um, I saw possibilities in it, but I didn't know where I fit in. And I was still back and forth between public health and medicine. Um, but I really love what I do um, because I think the work is meaningful. Although it's really hard for research to have a sustained impact. Um, because it takes years to develop knowledge. So what we know right now about um, the high rates of infant and maternal mortality within, among Black women took decades to get to this point, right? But now there have been plenty of articles in the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune about this disparity and about the role that systemic racism plays in this disparity as an example. And so that, you know, even though it's not my area of expertise, but that is fulfilling to really see that, you know, the people who started doing this work, when you thought nobody really cared, when you thought nobody was listening, you know, they're being validated now because people are actually listening. It's it's taking a lot of time, but the research eventually informs um, the way the public thinks. And so um, with that, I think comes a lot of responsibility, but also a lot of pride in what, um, 
I'm currently doing around health equity. And so that has brought to me a lot of joy and frustration, but also teaching has brought a lot of joy because you, you know, you have students who are just as eager as you were to learn about this topic and you have the opportunity to share with them new ideas, new perspectives that maybe they haven't heard or seen before. Um, so that um, is an, something that I didn't expect I would love so much in terms of teaching because I don't like to grade. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I could forgo the grading. I could forgo the paperwork um, and just like sit and talk and lecture with my students all day. That would be my ideal. Um, but I do love it when I see the ideas click where they understand the world in another way um, and then can think about how it applies to their lives or the lives of people around them. So I guess public health is great and I hope more people get into it and I hope um, um, the, you know, the world appreciates public health far more than it has in the past. Very cool. Well, Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I've enjoyed my time here. And that's a wrap for this episode of Public Health Matters. Thank you for tuning in and thank you again to Dr. Mitchell for speaking with us. Please enjoy this royalty-free music titled Winter Snow by Pistol Jazz. Until next time, stay safe, Chicago.